The California Dreaming Podcast is brought to you by Blueberry. There is more to making a podcast than just talking into your mic and hitting publish. You're going to need a little bit more than that. And I'm talking about reliable hosting so your time can be spent working on your show. You want accurate download numbers, you want to see the audience that you're reaching, and you're going to want a web page that is simple and easy to work with. That's why I've chosen to use Blueberry. It's simple media hosting and fully integrated WordPress website. It can't get any easier, especially for someone like me who knows nothing. If you host a show or you're thinking about starting one, visit www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to give it a try for a month for free. Their dedicated support team will be right there to help you every step of the way. And with one month for free using our promo code DREAM, you've got no more excuses to start up that podcast that you keep talking about starting. There are several ways that you can support California Dreaming. You can follow us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can spread the word about the show. You can recommend us in podcast and true crime fan groups. And you can leave the show a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to the show on. And if you would like to go a little above and beyond, you can also support the show on our Patreon. You can gain access to at least one exclusive episode per month, and there are currently more than 50 episodes that you can binge. So it's a pretty good deal starting at just $1. In addition to that, there are about eight premium episodes available for supporters at the $5 and above tiers. Now, right now, I'm currently in the middle of a series, an exclusive series on Patreon. Well, that was weird. I said the word series and Siri turned on. Anyway, that series is available to all tier levels, supporters at every level from $1 to $100. Not that I have any $100 supporters. But anyway, even at the $1 level, you will have all access to the series that we're currently in the middle of. I will do Patreon shoutouts next week. I'm a little bit pressed for time this week. I mentioned in the Facebook group that there's kind of this project I've been working on at the neighbor's place, sort of a hoarding situation that they have going on over there. It's this lady and her 98 year old mother. I've spent more time over there this week than usual because next week I'm going to be going to California to visit my daughter and I'll be damned if I'm going to miss a week putting out an episode for you guys. But anyhow, if you are unable to sign up for the Patreon subscription, if you should feel so inclined, you can make a one-time donation to the show through our PayPal using our email at californiapod at gmail.com. Every little bit helps to keep us going and to keep our promise to you, the listeners, for us to stay ad-free, hopefully forever, which would be nice. Okay, that's enough of that. Let's get started with today's show. Out of the night that covers me, black as a pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the burgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears, 
looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds, and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged the punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. Originally a poem written in 1875, first published in 1888 by English poet William Ernest Henley, it was without a title and was given several of them throughout the 19th century as the poem was reprinted, and it was finally given the title Invictus when incorporated into the Oxford Book of English Verse. Invictus. It is the Latin word for unconquered. It's been referenced by and recited by the likes of Winston Churchill, Nelson Mandela, President Barack Obama, as well as the likes of Nobel Peace laureates, prisoners of war, novelists, playwrights, filmmakers, musicians, just a bevy of makers and creators. But the poem was used as the final statement of the man well, one of the men, responsible for the murder of 168 people on April 19, 1995, at the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building located in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, Timothy McVeigh. Known as the Oklahoma City bombing, it would become the deadliest act of terrorism in United States history until the attacks of September 11, 2001, and to this day, remains the deadliest act of homegrown terrorism in history. On April 17, 1995, McVeigh, using the alias Bob Kling, along with a man who would later be identified as Terry Nichols, rented a rider-moving truck in Junction City, Kansas, located about 273 miles or 439 kilometers north of Oklahoma City. Between April 17th and 18th, witnesses reported seeing the rider truck parked at the Dreamland Motel in Junction City. The items that the men used in the bombing itself were mostly stolen, though some of it was purchased, possibly with proceeds from at least one robbery the two men committed sometime in late 1994. 40 50-pound or 23-kilogram bags of ammonium nitrate fertilizer was purchased at an agricultural supply shop in McPherson, Kansas by Nichols on September 30, 1994. An additional bag was purchased a little more than two weeks later. In addition to the ammonium nitrate, McVeigh wanted to use hydrazine rocket fuel, but it cost too much money. So then McVeigh tried and failed once to purchase several 55-gallon or 210-liter drums of nitromethane at an NHRA drag racing event in Texas. But the first salesperson he talked to refused to sell him the stuff, but the second salesperson that McVeigh approached ended up selling him three barrels. Stockpiling other materials to be used in the construction of the bomb, McVeigh rented a storage shed until he was ready to construct the thing inside the rider truck. He did do a test run, having constructed a prototype of the bomb that he intended to build, and he detonated it in a remote desert location, 
which was never noticed when he set it off. On April 16th, three days before the bombing, McVeigh and Nichols drove down to Oklahoma City from the motel that they were staying at in Junction City. They parked a getaway car a few blocks away from the federal building, at which time a nearby surveillance camera captured images of Nichols's pickup truck. The men had removed the license plates from this getaway vehicle and obscured the VIN number, which is usually located on the dashboard close to the driver's side of the window, with a note that the vehicle was not abandoned, that the battery was dead, and that it would be moved by April 23rd to please not tow it. McVeigh and Nichols then returned to Junction City. Sometime over the next two days, the men went to their rented storage unit, located at a facility close to where Nichols resided, and took all their bomb-making supplies and put everything in the moving truck. They drove everything over to Gary Lake State Park, which is where they proceeded to construct the bomb. In total, the bomb weighed 7,000 pounds, or 3,200 kilograms and McVeigh mixed the materials to maximize the explosiveness and the resulting fireball. He also arranged the 13 barrels containing the explosive materials in such a way that the direction of the energy of the blast would be focused in one particular direction. So in other words, instead of the bomb producing a blast that would radiate from the truck at 360 degrees, the force of that blast would be more deliberately aimed in the direction of the federal building itself, at the people inside, innocent people, that had nothing to do with the problem that Timothy McVeigh had. Innocent people. 108 federal employees, six members of the U.S. military, 35 civilian adults, and 19 children the youngest of whom was three months old, and three of the women killed were also pregnant. Of this, McVeigh said, I did not define the rules of engagement in this conflict. The rules, if not written down, are defined by the aggressor. It was brutal, no holds barred. Women and kids were killed at Waco and Ruby Ridge. You put back in the government's faces exactly what they're giving out. It was McVeigh's apparent resentment for the manner in which government agents handled the standoffs at both of these incidents. Ruby Ridge in 1992, in which the man that they were after, Randall Weaver, his wife and 14-year-old son were killed in that event, and the siege at a religious compound in Waco, Texas that began on February 28, 1993 and ended on April 19, 1993. In total, four ATF agents were killed, while a total of 82 members of the Branch Davidians were killed, a total that included 25 children and two pregnant women. Both of these incidents were attempts by federal agents to serve warrants. For Randall Weaver, it was an arrest warrant. For the Branch Davidian compound, it was a search warrant. Anyway, McVeigh cited these two incidents specifically, that he was angry about the way federal agents conducted themselves as the motive for the attack on the federal building. 
The two men carried out their bombing at the building in Oklahoma City on the second anniversary of the violent and fiery ending of the Waco, Texas standoff. McVeigh was eventually convicted of 11 counts of murder and conspiracy on June 2, 1997 and sentenced to death. He was executed on June 11, 2001. Terry Nichols was tried twice, once in federal court and once in state court. In federal court, Nichols was convicted of conspiring to construct a weapon of mass destruction and eight counts of involuntary manslaughter related to the deaths of federal officers or government officials and was sentenced to life without parole. But the state of Oklahoma was like, well, we want to send him to death row too. So he was charged on the state level with 161 counts of first-degree murder. That didn't include the eight federal agents he'd already been convicted of, but it did include one of the babies that one of the female victims was pregnant with. However, the jury could not reach a unanimous decision on whether or not Nichols should be sentenced to death, so the judge went ahead and threw all of his books at him and sentenced him to 161 consecutive life sentences without parole. The location where the Alfred P. Murrah building once stood is now a national memorial park dedicated to the victims, survivors, and everybody who responded to the tragedy and everybody who'd been affected by the tragedy. In the Oklahoma City, National Memorial is also registered as a historic place. The Memorial Park features bronze gates of time, marked with the minute before the bombing, the minute of the bombing, and the minute following the bombing. There is a reflection pool, a survivor's wall, a survivor tree, which is an elm tree that was severely damaged in the bombing but survived, and there are thousands of trees that have been grown all across the nation all of the seeds of which came from that tree. There is a children's area with some hand-painted ceramic tiles adorning the walls, as well as chalkboards for children to share thoughts and expressions of feelings, and there's also a memorial museum. In addition, there is the Field of Empty Chairs. 168 bronze and glass chairs with the names of each of the victims etched at the bases of the chairs. There are nine rows, symbolic of the nine floors of the federal building, and each victim's chair is located in the row representative of the floor that they were on when they were killed. The chairs are also arranged in a manner that is representative of the pattern in which the building was most heavily damaged. For example, there are five victims who were not inside the federal building itself when they were killed, so their five chairs are located in the far western portion of the field. And then there are 19 chairs that are smaller in size than the other 149. Those smaller chairs are in honor of the 19 children who perished. And the three unborn babies, their names, the names that they would have been given, they're etched below the names of their mothers on their respective chairs. 
I will read the names of the 168 people who lost their lives as a result of this act of domestic terrorism and their ages. And we will go from the area surrounding the federal building and starting from the top, we'll go floor by floor. And we'll do that after we close out this episode. So you may listen if you so choose. Today, we're going to talk about a man who went on a destructive rampage of his own. A man who was known to have said to a friend that Oklahoma City was good stuff. We are going to go through the details of a series of events in this man's life leading up to the day that he seemingly snapped. In this 161st episode of California Dreaming, the tale of the making of a homegrown terrorist. The background of the story is the community of Claremont, located in the city of San Diego, California. The development of Claremont, the genesis of it, was born out of a post-World War II demand for housing in an area that was now home to some of the largest defense manufacturing companies in the country. The idea behind Claremont was for it to stand out from the typical late 40s to early 50s standard grids of perpendicular and parallel streets with every other home being nearly identical with ever so slight variations barely standing out from one another. When I think of housing grids like this, I immediately think of the layout of the neighborhood in the movie Edward Scissorhands which is actually a real thing. That neighborhood is located in Tampa, Florida. Movielocations.com called it a strange little pastel neighborhood, and I don't think I could have described it any better than that. Well, those working to develop this new, modern plot of suburbia were going to take advantage of the rolling hills and vistas that overlooked the city of San Diego. So instead of living in a cookie-cutter grid house, you could stare at them from your front porch. The aircraft industry was steadily growing, in full swing actually, since World War II was over, and that was followed by the Korean War, the country really wanted to rebuild its fleet of military aircraft. And San Diego became one of the largest areas in Southern California for that industry. That along with Long Beach and the Los Angeles area. Both my dad and his brother, who were in the Navy and Air Force respectively in World War II, ended up in California after the war with my uncle working in aerospace with McDonnell Douglas until he retired. And my dad, he had retired from the Navy but he ended up working with the Central Intelligence Agency in Vietnam for several years, hence my mom. And he eventually ended up retiring from an aerospace and defense technology company called Northrop Grumman. Even though I'm not a baby boomer, my dad had me really late in life, 
He was one of those who had made the exodus from the Midwest to California because of World War II and did end up in one of those cookie-cutter homes that everyone loved so much at the time. So the area was not only booming with the aerospace industry, but also with electronics and the automobile industry as well. As the country's biggest automotive competitors, which were and are Germany and Japan, had all but been decimated by war. So the United States was able to capitalize on that as well. And that is precisely how the Nelson family ended up in Claremont. Fred and Betty Nelson. It was a combination of going into one of the most prosperous times in modern American history and that the land that these homes were being built on was relatively inexpensive at the time, which is something nobody is saying today about San Diego. The jobs were good. The pay was more than enough. It was very affordable. So basically, if you had a job, you could buy a house. And from there, we have the onset of the time that brought us the boomers that we so lovingly refer to today. And one of those boomers was a man named Sean Nelson. He was the middle of three sons born to Fred and Betty. Fred had served in the war, and afterwards he had taken a job in Washington, D.C. Following that, he was offered a job to work for a company in San Diego called General Dynamics, which he accepted. It was a manufacturing plant that manufactured planes and fighter jets for the Air Force. At its height, General Dynamics had upwards of 30,000 employees working for its San Diego plant. According to Sean's brother Scott, his dad was one of the designers, having worked on the design for the Tomahawk, which is a two-seater plane, as well as having been involved in the design of some of the first crafts ever launched into space. At the time, Fred was working for General Dynamics, They were producing planes for the Air Force at a rate of three planes per day. And the company, in the case that there was any sort of natural crisis or threat of attack, they had the capability of manufacturing as many as 10 planes per day. Anyway, Fred was able to provide for his family a very comfortable life as there was never any shortage of work and there wouldn't be for the foreseeable future. However, the same could not be said for the Nelson children. Sean Nelson was born August 21, 1959. After he graduated from high school in 1977, he enlisted in the United States Army. He served for two years and was stationed in Germany and worked as a tank crewman. For the most part, the United States had very little in the way of any major military action anywhere in the world. I mean, if he would have stayed in the Army for another 11 years, he would have been around to be possibly involved with Operation Desert Shield. That was the buildup of coalition forces in Saudi Arabia. And then a year after that, Operation Desert Storm, which was the military response to the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait which was a combat event that only lasted about six weeks anyway. 
The United States would not become involved in a long-term war again until 2001, which is known as the War in Afghanistan, the response to the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, and is still ongoing today. This time in between the Vietnam War and Operation Desert Storm for the United States military was relatively quiet. Sean may have been able to re-up his enlistment, but he didn't, and he was honorably discharged after two years. However, there was a notation about his time in the Army that was listed in his paperwork as, quote-unquote, multifaceted disciplinary problems, which is likely part of the reason why he either didn't extend his obligation to the Army or the Army didn't really want him to. What specifically was meant by multifaceted disciplinary problems isn't clear, just that he was a problematic soldier. And it wasn't just one thing. There were multiple things that he had gotten in trouble for. There was a time in Sean's life after he was out of the army that things were good. He had found work as a plumber and he was making a pretty good living. His ex-wife, Susie Hellman, who at the time she was married to him was a legal administrative assistant, told the San Diego Tribune that he had been a relatively successful plumber, that they had been able to purchase their own home, and they were doing well. The 1980s was still a time when it wasn't difficult for a blue-collar worker to be able to buy a home in Southern California. But things took a turn for Sean in the span of about four years. He lost both of his parents, his mom in 1988 and his dad in 1992. His ex-wife said that Sean's demeanor and his behaviors had taken an erratic turn and he began abusing alcohol and methamphetamines. And as I mentioned before, we don't know for sure what happened in the army but I wouldn't be surprised if the discipline had something to do with perhaps excessive drinking and things like that. Both Sean and his brother Scott struggled with substance abuse. As for the third brother, his name is Kevin, there is not very much mentioned about him or if he had the same struggles that his brothers had when it came to drugs and alcohol. So Sean's and Susie's marriage did fall apart between the death of his parents sometime in 1991. That's when she decided to file for divorce. Sean was spiraling and she had just had enough. I'm not too clear on what Sean's next move was, but from what I was able to glean from some of the interviews that were conducted in the documentary on this case, which I'm not really a big fan of, this is not the best documentary, if I'm being honest. As a matter of fact, I didn't like it at all. I know it was made in 2002, but it looks like they used a lot of archived news footage and interviews with reporters from back in 1995. But I just didn't like the way the reporters were acting. I don't like the questions they were asking. And the interviews with police were kind of cringy, too. There was this one officer that was driving around the Claremont neighborhood where the Nelson family had lived and he said something along the lines of the parents having passed away and the kids took over the house and just lived there using drugs or something to that effect and he called them bottom feeders 
and it just felt really disrespectful and it undermined other issues that were perhaps going on in these people's lives that he had no idea about. Anyway, I'll go over how I feel about the documentary a little bit more towards the end. I'm just grateful that a lot of documentaries are much more well-produced nowadays. This was the mid-90s to the early 2000s, so it's kind of dated. The mentality of the people that they were talking to and the police, the way people viewed those who struggled with drug addiction, calling them bottom feeders, was just really cringy. But anyway, we don't really know what had been going on in Sean Nelson's background. We don't know what his upbringing was like, what he struggled with. If he had any mental health issues, it wasn't even brought up in the documentary. Things that may have gone undiagnosed and untreated. The generation that his father and mother are from, it's the same generation that my dad was from, and we call them the greatest generation. They grew up or lived through the Great Depression, and they fought and won one of the greatest war victories in modern history. And they came home to the most prosperous and booming time this country had ever seen. For some baby boomers, that may very well have been a tough act to follow. They would become known as the hippie generation, much different from those of the greatest generation. They are said to have a sense of entitlement, as well as a distaste for hard work, unlike their predecessors. And I don't like to make this sweeping generalization of the entire baby boomer generation. And possibly some of us who fall into Generation X may view millennials and Generation Z. Again, it's just a perception, not necessarily true for everyone. And I don't really want to start a big debate over this. I'm the mother of a Gen Zer, and I don't think she necessarily fits the stereotype, you know? Do I fit the Generation X stereotype? Probably, but I think we're proud of it, right? <laughs> nah, we don't really give a crap. But anyway, while baby boomers are kind of taking the brunt of the blame for the state in which the country is in today, not all of them were able to find high-paying jobs with retirement benefits many of us could only dream of. Sean Nelson is one of those. He had drug problems that had been traced back to middle school. He steadily became worse as the years wore on, and like I said, most likely affected his time enlisted in the army. Those two years that he spent in a German tank battalion were described as an incredibly unhappy time for Sean. He thrived in his work as a plumber. As a matter of fact, he was so well-liked, and he was so good at what he did, that when customers would call up the company that he was working for, they would ask for him specifically. Sean would eventually open up his own plumbing business. He had his own van, his own equipment, and things seemed to be on track for him, and he continued to build up his own clientele. But his success as a plumber only lasted for so long. Following the death of his mother in 1988, his wife filing for divorce in 1991, there was another life-changing event that deeply affected nearly every aspect of Sean's life. He was involved in a motorcycle accident that left him with a severe neck and back injury. Some reports say it was an injury, others say it was a broken back 
Another report said it was a broken neck. And then yet another report, and this one was in the documentary, one of his friends said that he broke Sean's back when they were fighting. So whatever the story was, he suffered some sort of injury to his spinal cord. At some point, Sean had attempted to leave the hospital. At least that is his account of what happened. He didn't want to be treated, and he wanted to walk out. While the article I read about this didn't say he was forced to stay in the hospital, or if they talked him into staying, or if he was simply incapable of leaving because of his injuries, but I believe he ended up staying, and he was treated for his injuries, but he would say that it was treatment he didn't consent to. His lawsuit was for damages seeking $1.6 million, but it was thrown out by the judge seeing his case. Not only that, the hospital ended up countersuing Sean for the cost of his medical bills as well as legal fees that they incurred as a result of this lawsuit, which they won, and their judgment was a little more than $6,600. And to compound things even worse, Sean was also under the belief that the hospital was responsible for his mother's death. She had died of cancer, and I guess he possibly believed that they didn't provide her the kind of treatment that may have been more effective or enabled her to live a little bit longer. I believe that after Sean's father died in 1992 that he and his brothers inherited the Claremont house, but in the ensuing years, his drug use had intensified. In 1994, police had responded to calls to Sean's house a total of nine times, for things such as domestic violence and a robbery. Someone had stolen Sean's work van and all of his plumbing equipment, leaving him with no means to work. That was his only source of income. Though considering Sean's motorcycle injuries or his injury to his back and his struggles with addiction, I can't say that he was doing as well as he had been in the plumbing business anyway. But with his van having been stolen, whatever work he was able to do was then completely gone. And from there, Sean continued to spiral. Neighbors said that they could hear yelling or fighting coming from the home all hours of the night. They would also hear him mowing his lawn in the middle of the night as well. The front yard had pretty much been turned into a garbage dump, littered with pieces of cars car engine parts, various chunks of scrap metal, and it was just trash. And most interestingly of all, in the backyard, Sean was digging a huge hole in which he believed there was gold to be found, like gold mining gold. He would dig all day, and once it was dark, he would turn on floodlights, which not only lit up his backyard, but everyone else's yards that surrounded his house, and he would just be incessantly digging. He had apparently found some sort of nugget that he believed to be gold, but whether or not it was really gold was never confirmed. But all that really mattered was that Sean believed it was gold, that his property was sitting on a fortune, so he just had to dig it up. While the neighbors really didn't know what to make of Sean and the things that he was doing, all of them agreed that he was generally a nice person. 
and they didn't have anything bad to say about him in that sense. They liked him. He was just sort of an odd bird. And another thing related to Sean's apparent gold mine in his yard that some believe was yet another thing that got him so upset was the fact that he had gone down to the San Diego City Hall and filed the paperwork that would give him the rights and claims to the minerals underground in his backyard. That claim was rejected. Sean had taken in a roommate at some point, an arrangement that had only lasted for three days. At least that's what the roommate had said, but he said that he had come to find Sean's behaviors to be quite disturbing, which caused him to move out pretty quickly. Sean was so angry and upset with the city of San Diego, and he had the feeling as though that they were after him and after his gold, and that he was being harassed about his digging, as well as their refusal to allow him to stake his claim. So to quickly recap here with the things going on in Sean's life leading up to the day our story takes place. His mother died of cancer in 1988. He started his own plumbing business in 1990. He injured his neck and back in a motorcycle accident or a fight that same year. His wife left him in 1991. His dad died of cancer also in 1992. He has drug use dating back to his middle school years, which steadily escalated as these major life events took place. He unsuccessfully sued the hospital for $1.6 million, claiming that they, in treating his injuries and keeping him there, were guilty of negligence, battery, assault, and false imprisonment. To make matters worse, he was successfully sued by the hospital. Then he became convinced that he was living on top of a gold mine, literally, a claim he tried to file with the city to make sure everything he dug up was rightfully his was denied. And then in 1994, Sean's sole source of income, his plumbing van and all of his equipment was stolen from him and was never recovered. And things continued to snowball from there. Unable to pay any of his bills shortly after he lost his work van, Sean soon had his utility shut off, and the mortgage lender foreclosed on his house. In April of 1995, in a last-ditch effort to come into a windfall of money, he filed a pair of claims against the city of San Diego seeking damages totaling $2 million, claiming he had been falsely arrested and that the police acted negligently. But I don't think Sean would ever see that claim through to the end. Then, also in April of 1995, Sean's family described what was really the last thing that he had been hanging on to. A woman that he had been in a relationship with, named Michelle, had left him. I also read another report that she died of an overdose. So, whichever one of those stories is true, I'm not exactly clear on. But either way, that was pretty much all Sean Nelson could take. Then, April 19, 1995 happened. The Oklahoma City bombing. An event the entire nation had their attention on. Including Sean, down there in what had once been his idyllic childhood home of Claremont. A few weeks later, while talking to a friend, Sean said that Oklahoma was good stuff. Exactly what he meant by that, 
It seemed as though the friend didn't ask any further about the statement, and it can be interpreted a number of different ways. But how I interpreted it is that he liked what he was seeing. He liked what Timothy McVeigh had pulled off. He seemed to like the idea of an act of terrorism in order to get his message across to those he felt had wronged him. And it appears as though Sean Nelson's biggest beef was with the city of San Diego. Sean himself had no connections to any type of organized group or any sort of local militia or terrorist. He was alone in what he perceived to be his war with these various entities. The hospital, the court system, the police department, city hall. And he was going to take matters into his own hands since nobody was listening. In the week or so leading up to what Sean would ultimately end up doing, he at least on one occasion expressed his desire to end his own life. And following that, once he saw what happened in Oklahoma City, it seemed as if that event planted an idea in Sean's head. Maybe there was something big that he could do in order to get the attention of the powers that be at City Hall or at the police department or whoever he felt were harassing and bullying him out of his rights and his goal. On May 15, 1995, suffering from an earache and he was penniless, he borrowed a few dollars from a friend to get some eardrops to try and ease the discomfort that he was experiencing. Two days later, on the morning of Wednesday, May 17, 1995, just two days shy of the one-month anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing, Sean Nelson put his own plan of domestic terrorism into action. The only thing anyone has been able to say to try to even explain what Sean did next was that he simply snapped. It was about 6.30 in the late afternoon when Sean drove himself over to the California National Guard Armory located in Kearney Mesa, a community of San Diego. Employees at the armory were still on site, so the gates that led to where the armored vehicles were was still open and nobody was around guarding the area. Remember, Sean was in the Army from 1978 to 1980, and he was a tank crewman, so he knew how to drive one. And at the time, tanks didn't have keys. They had an ignition that was a button. Sean climbed into a tank, attempted to start its engine, but it wouldn't start. He tried a second one, no dice. He tried a third time, and I guess for him, it was a charm. He pushed the ignition button, and the tank engine roared to life. However, as he was climbing into the hatch at the top of the tank, someone finally noticed him and began walking towards it. But as soon as that guardsman heard that engine start, he knew that there was little to nothing that he could do to stop the tank. Hence, the purpose of it. All he could do was call San Diego police. The tank that Sean was in, and I don't know much about tanks. There are lots of letters and numbers describing all the doodads on the thing. So to dumb it down as much as possible, 
The tank that he was in is an M60A3 Patton, which weighs 57 tons, and that's 114,000 pounds or 51,700 kilograms. And it has a top speed of about 30 miles or 48 kilometers per hour. There were about 15,000 of them built by the time production of them ended in 1983. And in addition, about 5,400 older tanks were updated and converted to M60A3s. The tank's main gun is an M68 105mm, so the ammunition is huge. I will try to remember to upload a picture I found of someone holding one. Fortunately, the tank was not loaded with any ammunition at the time Sean stole the tank. And off he went on what would turn out to be a 23-minute, 6-mile, or 9.5-kilometer rampage. As soon as the guardsman saw Sean get into the tank and drive off the property of the armory, he saw him break through a chain-link fence. He went ahead and called police, and before long, the media was out, capturing much of the tank's travels on camera from both the ground and from the sky. Many of you listening may remember when this happened, because I sure do. And it was a really incredible sight to see, to watch something like this, seeing this tank rumble through neighborhood streets, across people's lawns, taking out everything in its path. Over the course of those 23 minutes that Sean was driving this tank, He hit or rolled over approximately 40 vehicles, including smashing an RV into pieces. One woman and her child sustained minor injuries when he rammed into their vehicle. He aimed the tank towards police who were in pursuit. He took down utility poles, causing more than 5,000 customers to lose power temporarily. He took down signal lights. He rolled over street signs. He hit fire hydrants, causing water to come spouting into the air. He hit trash cans, bus benches. He had attempted to take down the cement pillar of a freeway overpass, but he backed up a couple of times and rammed it, but he was unable to knock it down. And then he continued on. He eventually got onto the entrance ramp of the 805 freeway south, and took that to the interchange of the 163, also headed south. The freeway was shut down, stranding hundreds of motorists during rush hour. Finally, Sean attempted to cross over from the southbound lanes onto the northbound lanes by smashing through the concrete center divider of the freeway, and in doing so, the tank became hung up on the divider and was no longer able to be moved. One of the tank's tracks had become dislodged, but it was clear that Sean was still attempting to maneuver the tank in order to jar it loose from where it had become stuck. Dozens of officers in their patrol cars converged around the tank. One officer in particular, Paul Paxton, he was a Marine Corps reservist, a gunnery sergeant. He had been specifically called into the scene because of his expertise with military equipment as he knew what it was going to take to get into the tank and to stop it, which he was able to do. He, along with three other officers, climbed on top of the tank to the entrance hatch, 
which Officer Paxton was able to open with a pair of bolt cutters. Sean Nelson was given the orders by police to surrender, but he spoke no words to them, and he continued to repeatedly throw the tank into reverse and into drive in order to rock it loose from where he'd become hung up. Once it was evident that Sean would not be giving up willingly, the officers were ordered to shoot him, which Officer Paxton's partner, Richard Piner, did, hitting Sean one time with a bullet that went through his neck. Sean survived for a while but died that same night at the very hospital that he had felt had caused him so much grief following his back injuries and the death of his mother. He was 35 years old and the only person that died that day as a result of his tank rampage. The shooting of Sean Nelson has been both criticized and deemed necessary. Some believe that other means could have been utilized to stop him, including the possibility of firing a canister of tear gas into the hatch of the tank and driving him out in that manner. But the superior officers who gave the orders to shoot Sean have said that the tear gas may have been able to stop Sean, but it wasn't necessarily going to be able to stop the tank from being jarred loose from the median, continuing out of control on the freeway, possibly injuring or causing death to their police officers or nearby passers-by who were still going by on the freeway. That the shooting of Sean Nelson was necessary to ensure that the threat was neutralized. There were still many vehicles speeding by on the northbound side of the freeway. Only the southbound side had been shut down. And it was a risk that officers felt like they couldn't take. If the tank had been filled with tear gas, and if Sean had been able to shake the tank loose... Officers would not have been able to enter the tank in order to gain control of it either because of the tear gas. Police had also considered getting help from nearby Camp Pendleton to see if it was possible for one of their attack helicopters to disable the tank. Because obviously police departments are generally not equipped to stop tanks. Ultimately, the safest and best option that police could come up with was to use deadly force to stop Sean before he could continue any further with his destruction. Even his brother Scott publicly stated that he agreed with law enforcement's decision to utilize deadly force in stopping him. And needless to say, the National Guard Armory was heavily criticized for its lapse in security, which allowed for Sean Nelson to easily access one of their tanks to begin with. And considering the Oklahoma City bombing had just happened a little less than a month earlier, security should have been a top priority. The gates to the vehicle yard were wide open, but even so, nearby residents reported that the fencing around the armory was compromised as well. Even if the gates were closed and locked, Sean still could have been able to scale the fence in some specific places where the barbed wire had fallen off or was missing. The armory did say it would take someone with highly specialized training in order to be able to start and drive a tank. 
And that an event like this was something that nobody could have ever predicted happening. But as it were, it just so happened that a nearby resident, former Army soldier Sean Nelson, did have that exact specialized training. Along with a series of unfortunate life events that eventually pushed him over the edge. And really, San Diego is a military city. There are probably lots of people who live in the area that know how to drive a tank. It was only a matter of time before someone like Sean came along to wreak 23 minutes of havoc on the typically quiet suburbs of San Diego. Well, what Sean Nelson was ultimately going to do with the tank can never be known. A couple of theories have been speculated upon. One is that he was possibly planning to take the tank over to the hospital where he was treated for his back injuries, which is the same hospital that he blamed for his mother's death. And it was the same hospital where Sean Nelson ultimately died, ironically. Perhaps he was going to ram into the hospital building. Or there was a possibility that he was going to drive the tank onto the steps of City Hall and demand that they listen to him demand that his voice finally be heard. The media cast Sean Nelson as a deranged lunatic, a maniac, a madman, among other adjectives. Others attributed his actions to his addiction to methamphetamines and how the long-term use of the drug can lead people to react in violent ways. Compound that with his life spiraling, his parents passing away, his wife and girlfriend leaving him, being unemployed, his stolen van, unable to work, having no income, in constant pain because of the motorcycle accident, and soon he was going to be homeless, he was talking suicide. Whatever the case was, Sean Nelson was alone and desperate. He needed help. The man that all the neighbors thought was odd but nice really needed help. But help never came. A Los Angeles Times article was written a couple of days after the tank rampage, and it described Sean as a man beset by financial, family, and drug problems. Sean had told friends and neighbors he was angry with the city, angry with police. He felt harassed. His behaviors had become erratic. He had expressions of suicidal ideation. He liked what he saw in Oklahoma City. His life was in shambles. But from what I could see from the interviews with various neighbors, his brother, and those who knew Sean, they all seemed to think that he was just paranoid and weird, which I don't think is an accurate assessment of him. At least that does not paint a complete picture of who Sean Nelson was and what was happening to him in his life. There was nothing about the documentary that provided any real or meaningful insight into why all this happened. The people who were interviewed, I mean, if Sean had problems because of drug use, I'd say most, if not all of them, who spoke on camera were probably in the same boat. In the media, the reporters, they seemed to enjoy what they were seeing coming from these people in doing these interviews. 
Whether they were local reporters or if they were the actual documentarians, I couldn't be certain. But they were borderline mocking Sean and the people that they were interviewing, at least to me, as well as Sean's actions. These reporters were looking for gossip. Like Sean was this crazed man, drugged out of his mind, who decided to steal a tank one day because he was so messed up because of his drugs and his deranged paranoia. The reporters were just asking questions like, didn't he seem to be acting strange? Was he high on drugs? Was he saying crazy things? And those who were answering the questions weren't much better than the reporters, at least to me. It was like they were making Sean out and his life and what he did to be some sort of joke and that he was delusional and just out of his mind. One person said, What kind of a person gets down into a hole in his backyard looking for gold? That's tweaker behavior. Only tweakers do that. Not one time did anyone say that Sean Nelson was a guy who had a hard time in life once he got out of the army. No one ever speculated as to how the death of his parents, particularly his mom, may have had a deep effect on his mental and emotional stability. Not one time did anybody say, I thought maybe he had some mental health issues and I wanted to suggest or I did suggest that he seek help from Veterans Affairs. All anyone ever did in this documentary was attribute everything to him being Crazy Sean with his crazy ideas and his crazy behaviors. Sean literally had nobody in his life on the outside looking in who took notice of the red flags that something inside him was building up. Granted, they all said he was a nice man, and I believe them. But aside from that, everyone looked past all of the troubling warning signs and decided it was just Crazy Sean being Crazy Sean. It's sad. It's a very sad ending to a man that could have been saved if he had someone in his life that recognized that he needed something and someone to not leave him or walk out on him. But he just didn't have anybody. The documentary, those people who said that they were his friends, it felt more like, to me anyway, that they were interested in sensationalizing what Sean had done with baseless claims and stories about what they had seen him do and hear him say, and mocking him in a gossipy kind of way with these reporters, and it was just all really ugly to me. Nobody ever said, Sean was hurting. Nobody ever said, Sean was in pain. They never said that he struggled really hard. No one ever said that life was slowly taking its toll on him. Nobody ever said that they wished they knew how much he was hurting or that maybe he was struggling with mental health issues. And nobody, nobody, none of his friends, family, or neighbors ever said how sad they were because of his loss. His brother did say that Sean needed help, but followed that up with saying nobody could help him. And to me... That's kind of a cop-out.
And that will bring this 161st episode of California Dreaming to a close. Please come over to our Facebook discussion group if you haven't done so yet and request to join. It's there we discuss the cases we cover and share our thoughts, not only about our show, but other podcasts that you listen to and documentaries that you've watched. I've certainly provided my opinion on the documentary that I watched on this. And if you want to watch it, it's called Cul-de-Sac, a suburban war story, something like that. It's on YouTube. I'll try to post the link in the show notes. You can also go over to the show's Facebook page, like that page, and leave a review or a recommendation. You can also follow us on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. California Dreaming is brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network, a podcast production company on a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to. With an amazing roster of shows with content including true crime, history, sports, entertainment, gaming, and social media. So visit our website at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You will find links to all of our podcasts as well as a direct link to our merchandise store on TeePublic. Again, the website is www.orbitaljigsaw.com. And don't forget, if you want to hear the names and ages of the victims of the Oklahoma City bombing, that will be coming after the closing of this episode. Thank you again so much for listening to the show. I'm your host, Roseanne, and as always, until next time, sweet dreams. These are the names of the 168 people who lost their lives in the Oklahoma City bombing on April 19, 1995. In the surrounding area, Rebecca Anderson, 37, Anita Hightower, 27, Catherine Ridley, 24, Robert Tipman, 51, Trudy Rigney, 31. Ninth floor, Shelley Bland, 25, Carol Fields, 48, Rona Kerner Chaffney, 35, Carrie Lenz, 26, and her baby Michael James Lenz III, Kenneth McAuliffe, 36, Cynthia Brown, 26, Donald Leonard, 50, Mickey Marooney, 50, Linda McKinney, 47, Kathy Siddall, 39, Alan Wicker, 40, 8th floor, Ted Allen, 48, Peter Avalonzo, 56, David Burkett, 47, Donald Burns Sr., 63, Kimberly Clark, 39, Susan Farrell, 37, Dr. George Howard, 45, Antonio Reyes, 55, Lanny Scroggins, 46, Leora Sells, 57, Jules Valdez, 51, David Walker, 54, 
Michael Weaver, 54, Francis Williams, 48. Seventh floor, Diane Outhouse, 45, Andrea Blanton, 33, Kim Cousins, 33, Diana Day, 38, Kasten Devereaux, 49, Judy Fisher, 45, Linda Florence, 43, Colin Giles, 59, Eugene Hodges Jr., 54, Anne Craneborg, 57, Teresa Lauderdale, 41, Mary Leisure Renty, 39, Betsy McGonnell, 47, Patricia Nix, 47, Terry Rees, 41, John Stewart, 51, John Van S. the third, 67, Joanne Wittenberg, 35. Sixth floor, Sergeant Benjamin Davis, United States Marine Corps, 29, Captain Randolph Guzman, United States Marine Corps, 28. Fifth floor, Olin Bloomer, 61, Dr. Margaret Clark, 42, Richard Cummins, 55, Doris Higginbottom, 44, Carol Khalil, 50, Retta Long, 60, Paul Broxterman, 42, Paul Ice, 42, Claude Medeiros, 41. Fourth floor, Lucille Alman Jr., 33, Mark Bolt, 28, Michael Carrillo, 44, Larry Jones, 46, James Martin, 34, Renata Newberry Woodbridge, 31, Jerry Parker, 45, Michelle Reeder, 33, Rick Tomlin, 46, John Youngblood, 52, Sergeant First Class Lola Bolden, United States Army, 40, Karen Carr, 32, Peggy Holland, 37, John Moss III, 50, Victoria Schoen, 36, Dolores Stratton, 51, Kayla Tisworth, 3.5, Wanda Watkins, 49. Third floor, Harley Cottingham, 46, Peter DeMaster, 44, Norma Johnson, 62, Larry Turner, 42, Robert Westbury, 57, Woodrow Brady, 41, Kimberly Burgess, 29, Kathy Finley, 44, Jamie Genzer, 32, Sheila Giger Driver, 28, and baby Gregory Driver II. Linda Housley, 53, Robin Huff, 37, and baby Amber Denise Huff. Christy Jenkins, 32, Alvin Justies, 
54, Valerie Kolesh, 33, Kathy Lenian, 47, Claudette Meek, 43, Frankie Ann Merrill, 23, Jill Randolph, 27, Claudine Ritter, 48, Christy Rosas, 22, Sonia Sanders, 27, Karen Shepard, 27, Victoria Texter, 37, Virginia Thompson, 56, Teresa Wharton, 28. Second floor. The following victims were inside the America's Kids Child Development Center. Bailey Allman, 1. Danielle Bell, 15 months. Zachary Chavez, 3. Dana Cooper, 24. Anthony Cooper II, 2. Antonio Cooper Jr., 6 months. Aaron Cloverdale, 5.5. Elijah Cloverdale, 2.5. J.C. Coyne, 14 months. Brenda Daniels, 42. Taylor Eaves, 8 months. Tevin Garrett, 16 months. Kevin Gottschall II, 6 months. Wanda Howell, 34. Blake Kennedy, 1.5. Dominique London, 2. Chase Smith, 3. Colton Smith, 2. Scott Williams, 24. First floor. Teresa Alexander, 33. Richard Allen, 46. Pamela Argo, 36. Sandra Avery, 34. Calvin Battle, 62, Piola Battle, 56, Oletta Biddy, 54, Cassandra Booker, 25, Carol Bowers, 53, Peachlin Bradley, 3, Gabrion Bruce, 3 months, Catherine Cregan, 60, Ashley Eccles, 4 Don Fritzler 64 Mary Fritzler 57 Laura Garrison 61 Ethel Griffin 55 Cheryl Hammond 44 Ronald Harding Sr. 55 Thomas Hawthorne Sr. 52 Dr. Charles Herbert 73, Jean Hurlbert, 67, Raymond Johnson, 59, Lakeisha Levy, 21, Arulia Lester, 43, Robert Lester Jr., 45, Reverend Gilbert Martinez, 35, Cartney McRaven, 19, Derwin Miller, 
27, Yula Mitchell, 64, Emilio Tapia, 50, Charlotte Thomas, 43, Michael Thompson, 47, LaRue Trainer, 55, Luther Trainer, 61, Robert Walker Jr., 52, Julie Marie Welch, 23, Stephen Williams, 42, Sharon Wood Chestnut, 47, Stephen Curry, 44, And Michael Loudenslager, 48. All of the victims hailed from Oklahoma, with the exception of three of them one from Alabama, and two from California. <laughs> 